Hi, I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Hi, it's Leanne Spencer. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. Thanks for joining. If you're a new listener, welcome. I hope you enjoy this episode and then go back and look through some of the other podcasts I've recorded with some really interesting people, actually, and see what else takes your fancy. And if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Thank you for continuing to listen to the show. I'm talking to you this week about, it's a a book actually that I've read called The Blue Zones by Dan Brutner. He's a researcher based out in the US and he, and the focus of his book is all about centurions, or more specifically, where in the world do we have the highest or do we see people living the longest or the highest proportion of centurions in that particular locality? And there are five places that he's identified after years of extensive research that have the highest or the most dense populations of centurions or above. Um, These places are Sardinia, Icaria in Greece, Costa Rica, Loma Linda in California and Okinawa in Japan. So these are areas called the Blue Zones. Uh, that's the name of Dan Bruckner's brilliant book. I have referred to it in some previous podcasts, but I want to delve a little bit more deeply into the nine common traits that Dan identified amongst all these people. So these are things that they all consistently do across the whole of those five blue zones. Because I think if you can start to weave some of that into your lifestyle, you're probably going to increase your chances of getting to a ripe old age in good health. And that's the key thing. The tagline for my business body shot is health span, not lifespan. And again, that's something I've talked about in lots of previous episodes. We want to live a full, happy, energetic and vital life for as long as possible, rather than just living for as long as possible, but perhaps not being useful or vital or having movement of our limbs and be able to be mobile and sharp cognitively and all the rest of that stuff. So the takeaway from this episode What I would ask for you is just to maybe consider one thing, possibly two, if you've got the bandwidth to do more than fantastic, but otherwise just take one or two things and see if you can weave that into your lifestyle and see how how better you feel as well. Some of it's not going to have an immediate impact, but other aspects of it definitely will. And I think you'll be able to tell the difference between the two as we move through. So those places, again, Sardinia, Icaria in Greece, Costa Rica, in particular, the Seventh-day Adventists in Loma Linda, which is California, and then the people of Okinawa in Japan. And they are the Blue Zones. Dan Butner's book is called Blue Zones, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Really recommend you get a copy of that if this piques your interest and read through it in more detail. So let's crack straight on then with those nine things. What do these folks all have in common? Number one is they move naturally. So a lot of the people that Dan looked at and his team were shepherds, for example, or they were people that worked the land, that worked animals on the land. A lot of their movement was definitely not structured exercise. It was natural movement. So moving up and down the hills, carrying heavy loads, doing very physical manual labor. And that was something that they all had in common. When you consider what we were designed to do, which is to move lots of daily life movement with spikes of moderate and high intensity exercise or movement, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, the more we move our bodies, the better our overall fitness, the better our musculature, the more dense our bones are, 
we get fresh oxygenated blood sent throughout the body. You know, it is, is without doubt what we were designed to do, and that's to move and move naturally. Interestingly, there are different forms of exercise now, animal flow being something that we talked about in the episode with myself, Laura and Brian and Antonia. So the whole team got together and we talked and it was Antonia actually who brought up natural movement. And we do a class called Animal Flow, which as the name suggests, has us moving through patterns that are similar to animal movements. It's actually a lot of fun. Yeah, one of the reasons I do that is it's a beautiful thing when you're flowing in and out of movement, but it's also a body weight exercise and it mimics natural movement patterns. It's not artificially constructed, if you like, like a bicep curl. You know, we never do that movement on its own. We move in a natural way using all the limbs and compound movements. So anyway, that is number one. So it's moving naturally. Number two is about purpose basically why you wake up in the morning. What is your, your broader purpose, your reason for being? And all of these folks had a very strong sense of purpose. They knew what they were about. They knew what their vocation was or their job was. It was very clear why they did it. They knew what their social relationships were about, what they wanted to get from life. And I definitely think having a strong sense of purpose can help with longevity. If nothing else, you know why you're here on this earth and you strive to better look after yourself when you've got a sense of purpose. And I've thought a lot about this in the last two, three years from a business perspective. So my business body shot, our purpose is to inspire you to prolong your health span through the use of personalized health, fitness and well-being. So it's very simple, very clear. And that purpose manifests itself in two ways with the business. One, we give away a lot of content. You're listening to it right now. But we also have a Facebook page, which we'll link to in the show notes. We have a website. We have a health IQ quiz that gives you a lot of really premium content in return for nothing but an email address, which we don't abuse. What else do we do? We have lots of assets like brochures and case studies and all that kind of stuff we give away. But we're a commercial business. And if you want to work with us on our coaching or our business programs, great. So we serve our purpose through those two means. Me personally, I've thought a lot about purpose and values and my values to live truthfully and considerately and to suckle the marrow out of life. You know, stuff I've talked about on the pod before. Purpose is something that was common across all those different groups of people. So they were very clear on that and the values that back it up. That I think is, is a key one. Number three is what Dan calls downshift. So this is really about downtime. What downtime do you have? How do you relax? How do you recover? A lot of focus is put on, on the movement. A lot of focus is put on purpose and what we do in a kind of physical driving forward way. Some of us a lot more than others. But what made these people different is they, they also had a very big focus on taking their foot off the gas, not necessarily on the brake, but off the gas. And for the Sardinians, for example, they have something called happy hour. And it is what you're thinking. It's an hour in which they got social. They maybe drank wine. So alcohol is actually one, one of the nine things, but I'll come back to that. But they would sit around, they're drinking wine, they're chatting, they're bonding, connecting. That's one of the things that the Sardinians do in happy hour. And for some of the others, it would be napping, prayer, anything really that reduces stress. And the connection here is between stress and inflammation. We know that chronic stress causes an inflammatory response in the body. In other words, it stimulates the immune system into thinking that the body is under attack and that can cause autoimmune conditions. But at very least, what it does is causes inflammation. And that's a situation that we really want to avoid in the body. Not, of course, if we've got cut, then you want to see the area of the cut sort of blossom with redness where the inflammation is and then white blood cells come in to 
prevent infection. That's a situation where you do want inflammation. But what we don't want is inflammation within the body when it isn't in response to a real and present threat. And that's what stress can cause. So having that, as they call it, downshift, but I would simply call it prioritizing recovery is absolutely crucial as well for longevity. So say so think about things that you can do for recovery. What kind of active rest can you do? Active rest, I would typify as walking, being mobile, but not getting into a stress state within the body. It's also things like meditation, reading, maybe it's watching a film or something like that. It's reading, it's talking and bonding, connecting with others in a you know, non-excitory way. It's all those kind of things and thinking as well about the inflammation in your body. Number four is the 80% rule. And I've just been talking to a friend of mine who's been here for the weekend, who spent quite a lot of time in Japan. And she immediately knew when I started talking about the blue zones and what I was coming up here to record, what the expression was. And I'm afraid I haven't remembered it, but the the Japanese have an expression for, I stop at 80%. And that is the 80% rule. You eat until you're 80% full and then you stop. And that has quite a, a big impact on blood sugar regulation, but weight management as well, but also your energy management, predominantly those last two things. So energy and weight because you're never eating to a point where you're oversated, where you're stuffed, which obviously causes problems with energy and with weight management as well. It's much easier to gain weight when you're overeating. The other thing that many of these these people did across these five different places is they had their larger meal at lunchtime and a smaller meal in the late afternoon or early evening. Now, my pattern up until a few years ago was to skip breakfast or have a poor choice of late breakfast lunch, and then a big evening meal. And that was my pattern. It took a little bit of breaking. But what we try and do now is eat a supper, if not the smallest meal of the day, certainly earlier in the evening. So you're creating a bigger window between supper and breakfast. And that's a separate thing altogether. But the 80% rule and having a smaller meal later in the afternoon or early evening rather than later on is another thing that these folks all had in common. Number five is they included lots and lots of plant matter, specifically beans into their diet. So beans such as fava beans, black beans, soya beans, lentils, all those kind of foods were included. Now that might go against your own personalized nutrition plan, but maybe worth seeing whether or not you can include some of those things. But they were also eating a lot of vegetation, a lot of plants. And specifically, those plants were not traveling halfway around the world and coming to us in some cases, double wrapped in plastic. But those plants tended to be grown, nurtured and tended by those people themselves. And that's something that's been pretty game changing for me, actually. In the last year, I've been growing my own vegetables. And it's wonderful, firstly, just to be able to go outside and pick a handful of Cavello Nero, pick some sprouts, pick some kale, some carrots out of the ground. The carrots haven't been so good, but there you go. And then bring them back in the house. And within 10, 15 minutes of coming out of the soil they're in a pot cooking, lightly being steamed or lightly boiled. That's been brilliant. And you can taste the difference with those vegetables as well. And you don't need to have a huge amount of space. I've got four decent sized raised beds, but you can grow veg in a very, very small space. In some cases, you can even do it in pots. So that's worth having a look at if you can. Certainly one of the things that that these people had in common is they were eating a lot of vegetables. Vegetables constituted a very big part of their diet. And they were including those different kinds of beans. The other significant thing on this point is they were having very minimal meat. 
So meat is actually described by one group as a condiment, a condiment being something that we add to food, either a season, you know, something that seasons the food, salt and pepper are typically thought of as condiments. And that goes to show you just how little meat actually featured in their diets. And the other thing to add on that is that when they did consume meat, it again could well have been an, an animal that they've had essentially as part of the family. So a cow or a pig or a chicken that they've been rearing, ready to slaughter and then use that meat throughout the season. That wasn't always the case, but they were quite minimal meat eaters. Now, I don't have any particular axe to grind, as it were, on the eating of meat per se, and there's I've just recently read a book actually called The Case for Sustainable Beef, which was talking about how beef is being vilified now as a major cause of environmental concern, amongst other things, as well as for health issues. But the author made quite a good case to disprove all of that. But I do think, if personally, for, for my diet, I like to have some meat in there. And whilst I have real concerns about, not really on the environment side, but on the animal welfare side, where I've kind of got to this is, I'm going to carry on eating meat for now, because I think it would be hypocritical simply to be vegetarian for animal welfare reasons, or study eggs, because... You know, a lot of the hens that lay eggs, even when they're beautifully boxed and positioned as healthy, often aren't. So it's, it's a little bit all or nothing for me. But where I've got to it is I'm going to consume meat two to three days a week, but ideally just by buying one or two things. So we tend to buy a chicken every week, which gets cooked in the oven, and then we strip it down, give some of the meat to the animals, keep some of it for another meal and put those bones into the slow cooker along with water that we've boiled the vegetables in. So we're preserving all the kind of the vitamins and anything that's come out of the veg in the boiling process. Goes into the slow cooker, top it up with onions, with garlic and season it with salt, pepper and some herbs and then cook that for about 14 hours. And then I just strain everything out and freeze the broth and that then forms another meal, for example, slow cooked chicken breasts for later on in the week. So we buy one piece of meat that makes two three meals and we buy a few chicken breasts every week as well but we do that from Riverford from Abel and Cole from Farm Drop or from the local butcher where I am well convinced that the animal's been reared in a humane way I'm pretty happy that I know where that animal has, has come from what sort of journey it's had from from the field to the table if you like and that's how we're doing things I'm not 100% comfortable with that but that's the way I'm doing it for the moment so I, I'm just accepting of that but minimal meat. So we have looked to cut down on our meat for animal welfare reasons and maybe for health, but I don't fully understand yet. I need to do some more research on that link between health and meat consumption. Uh, one thing I do know is when you're consuming meat that has come from a, or an animal that was happy, well looked after, not pumped full of hormones or steroids, slaughtered in a humane way so its body isn't riddled with cortisol, the stress hormone, that meat tastes better. So it's a win-win all round really. So that's where I'm at with meat. But number six, moderate alcohol consumption. So it might sound a bit strange to say that one of the nine key things that the centurions had in common was that they consumed alcohol because we're so conditioned to think it's a bad thing. Someone who's had a problem with alcohol and has been teetotal for, well, coming up seven years, you might think it odd that I would bring that in as well. But I'm bringing it straight from Dan's book, heavily condensed, obviously. And actually, what some of these folks had in common is that they, they had moderate amounts of alcohol on an almost daily basis. Usually, though, there were there's some conditions around this. They usually had that alcohol with food. It was very moderate. So we're talking about one and a half glasses a day or two very small glasses. 
It was wine that had been usually produced locally. So it's a fairly clean form of, of wine, not full of toxins or chemicals, but a much purer form of wine. It's still wine, it's still alcohol. But And the other significant thing is it was consumed amongst friends. So it was very much a social thing, not sitting at home on your own with a bottle of cheap wine and consuming it and drowning your sorrows or trying to block out pain or, or anything else that, that might cause you to do that. But it was a much more social thing. It was taken with food. It was drunk moderately and it was a clean form of, of wine, you know, minimal, minimal chemicals. Now, we know that certain genetic predispositions, whether or not your fast or slow metabolizer is linked to that, can mean that you have a gene that allows you to convert very small amounts of alcohol into good cholesterol, adverted commas. And good cholesterol is typically thought of as HDL, high-density lipoproteins. Now, that's not the case for everyone. I don't have that genetic variation. And as a result, I'm a slow metabolizer of alcohol. But we know from genetic tests like the one that we sell, but some of the others on the market potentially as well, that some people have that genetic variation. So there can be multiple benefits. There's an overall health benefit to a moderate amount of alcohol. And there's also a little genetic benefit that can give you a kick for good cholesterol. But that doesn't apply to everyone. You would need to test to know whether that was you. But that's another thing that these people had in common. I think one of the key aspects of that is also the social element. It's another reason to get out and be amongst a group of people in a kind of celebratory, happy way. It kind of links back to the Sardinians and happy hour. And it also links to point number seven, which I'm going to come to talk to now, which is all about connection. So a significant thing that these people all had in common is that they belonged to a faith-based community. It wasn't always faith-based, but quite often it was, irrespective of what that faith is. And by belonging to a faith-based community, they were enjoying the benefits of feeling as part of a collective. They had somewhere to share their woes, somewhere to identify with others, to demonstrate empathy, to get the benefits of helping others as well. We know that contribution and helping others is hugely beneficial for the nervous system and therefore for our overall health. It also prevented people from, from necessarily feeling lonely, which was now appreciated as being a really significant cause of ill health. There's a lot more research being done into this, and it's something that I'll bring up in a, a follow-up podcast maybe find an expert on this, but loneliness we're now coming to understand is really impacting people's health in a very significant way. So I think the fact that the faith may not have been the thing, although it may well have been as well, it's also about being in that, a part of that community. Now, I do think there's something about belief in all that, belief in a higher power, belief in a God in, in whatever form that is for those people, because I think that can also have health implications. You know, we, we know if you listen to a very recent podcast with Dr. Kenneth Pelletier, we talked about a book by Dr. Bruce Lipton called The Biology of Belief. That book addresses the power of belief. You know, we have the placebo, where if I give you a sugar pill and tell you it's a cure for whatever ailment you have, you take that and there's a good chance you'll feel better purely because I've told you this is going to make you feel better. Conversely, if I tell you you've done something that's detrimental to your health, it's called the nocebo effect, and you will therefore feel worse. Or perhaps if I've, yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite a complicated thing, but in other ways, it's very, very simple as well. It's, it's about faith. It's about believing and what impact that can have on the body and therefore on the nervous system. So I think that, that's a really interesting point all about the connection as well, the connection that they had between themselves, the friendship. Some of the people, if you read into the book, some of the people 
particularly the women, would get together at certain points of the day to drink tea or maybe to prepare food or to do something as a collective. And some of them would walk miles to get to these meetups. But it was a, a fixed part of the tradition. Quite often they would go to the oldest person in the group or to an elder or the leader of that particular community and sit around and exchange the news and gossip and, and all this kind of stuff. And that I can well imagine that's a very key part of longevity, keep you going for an extra few years. Now, also linked to point number seven is point number eight, which is that family came first, family and community, but family in particular, for many of these generations. It wouldn't be uncommon in these parts of the world to see multiple generations in one home. And Dan Brutner talks quite a lot about the case studies and the people he met in the book, where you would have four generations of people. And the oldest generation would be very, very engaged with the youngest generation. So somebody of 100 holding a baby of just a few years old. It's, it's really, really interesting. And the impact that that has on their, their well-being is, is really profound. And one thing I think we do have a little wrong, particularly in, in this culture, in our UK culture, is we don't seem to regard the elderly in a way that I think we should. Well, I'm sure everyone has someone on their road who is an elderly person and, and no one really seems to show much interest. There's not a lot of family around. I think the idea of putting our old folks, you know, the older generation into a home, essentially out to pasture is a pretty abhorrent one. I mean, surely we can do a bit better than that. We know that loneliness is a huge problem in the UK. And that's not just restricted to the elderly, of course. You can be 21 and lonely, 16 and lonely, 60 and lonely, 100 and lonely. But putting family first was really important to these people and it infused them with a sense of purpose as well. To come back to point number two, you know, looking after, mentoring, guiding the younger generations was another thing that really made these older people, the older generation, feel vital and feel alive and feel useful, all of which I think is essential for overall well-being. So that was point number eight. Point number nine is tribe. This is the last one. Habits can be very contagious, can't they? You know, a bad habit can be very contagious. If you've ever smoked, had that smoking habit encouraged, even subconsciously, by a friend who also smoked. You know, it just became contagious. They went for a cigarette, you went for a cigarette. If a friend went on a diet, you might go on a diet, and when they fell off the diet, you fell off as well. In the same way that bad habits can be really contagious, so can good. I remember when I ran a marathon, it was a couple of years later after my first marathon, that at least two friends started running marathons as well. Now, I'm not saying that is down to me, but it has a ripple effect. You know, you see somebody else do something and rave about it. You think, okay, I might try that. One of those friends' husbands then got a personal trainer and started running once a week. So that ripple effect, you know, and who knows who he's touched and who he's inspired to go out and start exercising or start running or start something that's positive for their health. And that's what I think is really powerful, particularly about exercise, is that contagion that can often happen. You know, people see you, you buzzing with hormones and you think, yep, I'll have some of that. But these contagious habits, these good contagious habits, was also was a key part of number nine, which is tribe. It's about establishing real social networks. And I guess this touches back on some of the other points as well. And you can probably see where the one theme of all of this, I think, is purpose, connection, putting family first, creating a tribe of people. We're going to start appreciating this more and more, I think, you know, the need to connect and, and to be part of something. 
I do quite a lot of work talking to businesses about how to build and create a culture of energy vitality and performance within their businesses. And for a lot of it, it's addressing people's need to be part of something they really believe in. Your workforce needs to really believe in what you do as a business, what the purpose of that business is, and therefore what their purpose is within that contributing to the greater aim. Social causes are often important to people now in businesses. You know, really exciting businesses have a a strong social cause that they get behind. For us, it's one of the UN global goals, number three, which is good health and well-being. And we're going to be doing a lot more around that. So it's all about creating a feeling of tribe, tribe within your business, but for you as an individual as well. What do you represent? Who else represents that? And when you have those real social networks, these good habits can become contagious. So all the things we've talked about, the consumption of of those beans and the vegetables, moderating alcohol and doing it with food and doing it moderately and doing it with friends, the 80% rule, the active recovery or the downshift as Dan Brutler calls it, prayer, napping, the happy hour, just reducing your stress and therefore your inflammation. All of this stuff can be contagious and that really plays to number nine. So there it is. They are the nine commonalities. So I really urge you to read the book if that's piqued your interest. It's called The Blue Zones. It's by Dan Brutner. And of course, we'll link to it in the show notes. The other thing about all this is living to 100, you could be doing all of that and you still might not make it to 100. Genes do play a part, quite an important part. But if you listen to that episode with Kenneth Pelletier, you'll know that genes aren't everything. Environment is crucial when we look at all of this kind of stuff. And these nine points all relate to environment. So even if you don't have the genes that are going to predispose you to longevity, by using your environment to your best advantage, you can still give yourself a really good chance of doing that. And that's my goal. I want to live to 100, but be in good health. And if you follow those nine points, you stand a very good chance of doing it yourself. So to bring it back to that call to action I issued at the beginning of the podcast... Which one of these can you, which one or two can you adopt? And then give it a few months of doing it and just see how different you feel. Is it a mental difference, a physical difference, a spiritual difference, emotional difference? Is it all of those? But either way, focus on one or two and go for it. You know, you're undoubtedly going to help your well-being and your overall health by tackling any one of those things. And I would love to hear how you're getting on as well. And if you've got any questions, so fire them off to me at Leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E at bodyshotperformance.com. Or you can get in touch with us via Facebook if that's where you're watching this or indeed via the website, which is bodyshotperformance.com. That's it for me. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals. Sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.